Stories on Media. This is Coming Out Stories. It's a podcast about one of the most important conversations of your life. I'm Emma Goswell. In this podcast, you'll hear from Lucy. Please be warned that it does include details of homophobic bullying and even physical violence. I always knew, at, you know, at, at infant school, when the boys were running around saying she's got pink knickers and I didn't care. You know, I didn't care if she had pink knickers on or not. It was, you know, those times. Like, yeah, right. It was of no interest to me. So I always kind of knew I was different, but I never knew what it was at that age. So, so it was, I mean, flickering lights in the studio <laughs> here, you know, and it's, it's just because I'm telling my story. <laughs> creepy, isn't it? It is, man. Welcome to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so... Paint a picture of what it was like going to school then, and what what decade was this? This was the eighties, so of mm. course you 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 still had your close twenty eight in then and things like that, and it was still an offence to be to be gay, and of course I wasn't the butchers looking at people, so at school I always ended up getting getting called faggot, queer, arse bandit. You know, all of those, all of those expressions. And, and is that because you were out or they just guessed? No, it was be- just guessed because I was, I, I, as I said, I was always slightly effeminate. So, uh, and they'd all, I always used to get done up by gangs at school. So even the teachers would then, because I was totally dyslexic at school as well. So the teachers would get me up to read, knowing I couldn't do it. And the, the teachers then, then would even say, queer cully, get up. As it was, you know what I mean? So The teachers? Yeah, yeah the teachers were... At that, called at you that. queer? Yeah. Yeah, so it was so, and it were they'd say, "Come on, you know, thicky, queer." You know, they would make get me up so that I would I would read, knowing I couldn't do it at the time. If I had the things in front of me and I'm doing it, I could do it, but I could never. So ever. How did that make you feel as a teenager at school? It, it made me feel horrible because of the fact that in the playground they'd all do me over in gangs. So, but then, but then of course when I went home, my dad was extremely homophobic. So, so because I got beat up at school, I'd then get beat up by him because I because I got beat up. So, so why was he beating you up? He wasn't happy that you weren't. Well, he was. He wanted. He wanted the big butch son that would help him with bricklaying and help him with and help him with flagging pavements and you know. You know, doing up houses and things like that. And I, I wanted to sing, I wanted to dance, I never wanted to, to do any of that. It was like, you know, please. I never wanted to do football. I just like the jacuzzi afterwards, that's it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, you know, it, it just, it did nothing for me doing all that kind of stuff. Was there ever a moment then when you admitted to, to yourself and to them that you were gay? Or, or how, did well, you, how did you deal with them calling you a faggot? It... I, I wouldn't say that I definitely was. That was a thing. I wouldn't say that I definitely was. And never, But the fact that my parents did take me to a psychologist at the time to find out if I was queer. Because I used to run away from home all the time because I hated being at home and I hated being at school. So, And then, of course, when I was full of bruises from my father, various things like that, um, and I went to the social services... He'd go down to the social services, charm the birds of the trees with them. They would then say, they would then put me down as being a problem child. He'd say, oh, he's got beat up by kids at school because he's effeminate. So they put me down as a problem child. So I could never go to the social services because they they just believed him. Mm. So eventually they took me to see a psychologist. This psychologist at the time, I was 13 year old at this time. um, The psychologist was throwing cigarette boxes at me. Because I didn't catch him. He says, oh, you must be you must be gay because you can't catch. They were his words then, right? What year was this? This was, this was 19, 19, about 1986, yeah. 
So around about, round about, round about 1985, because you're throwing cigarette boxes at me. And and after that, he said to my mum, oh, he said, well, do you want to go outside? So, and spoke to my mum. And then within a space of uh, a couple of weeks, I was stuck into um, uh, this adolescent unit in Manchester um, where they wanted to find it if I was queer and why I was running away. I knew why I was running away. I knew, I knew, I, I, by this time I knew I was gay, but I didn't want to say it. So, and they give you mild electric shock treatment then. And it was like this mild electric shock treatment, one to, you know, for you to actually talk. And I, I, I made a, I ended up getting friendly with a girl that sang. So we used to sing together and do Phantom of the Opera. And so I pretended she was my girlfriend. And, and so let me get this right. Because you were gay, yeah. you were sent to a home yeah. for children, yeah. for problem children. Yeah. And you were given electric shock. It was like family. a mild electric shock treatment they give you, and they, these little prongs on you, and little prongs here. So prongs on your head, pointing at your yeah, chest, there. and po- point, prongs on your chest. And what it was, literally, it wasn't a harsh one, but you felt it—just a little, you know. And it was, but all you see, all the, and I didn't fit in there because a lot of the kids that were in there, they, these are kids that had, you know, I mean rape their sisters and and slash themselves and all sorts and I I really I hated detested every minute and of it it was horrible you were only there because other people thought you were gay you yeah. hadn't even admitted it to yeah. them at that stage yeah definitely and why and they wanted to know why I was running away I knew why I was running away but my father wouldn't admit to the fact that so what was the electric shock therapy for then um apparently apparently this was apparently well, at the time I mean I was never told but apparently at the time it was basically probably just to basically get me to speak and things like that. It was like they're really just a mild one. It wasn't anything major, but it was still it still happened, and it were it was a horrible, horribly. And I, I remember feeling so alone and closed in the place. And you know, the my auntie who lived in Chorley at the time used to come and see me, and um, she knew the whole score of what my father was like, the works, everything, but. She never said anything to the home, anything like that. She just basically wanted to come down and give me the support. She said, because she still wanted to be able to see me. And if she'd have told them exactly what my dad was like, he would have got involved and she wouldn't have been able to. So I hold my hand out to, to my auntie for that. She was an amazing lady. Mm. So for, so did you come out to her? Um, well, yes and no. I kind of hinted to it, but I never said. But she always knew. Um, she always knew it was... That thing, but I, you see, I made, I was there for six months in that place, um, and I, I made my plans meticulously how I was going to do it in that six months. I convinced them I was straight, basically in the place they so, and that was so. I I literally planned every move meticulously then how I was going to leave that town, and I knew I had to plan it so. And when I did finally get out of there, I went shopping for old people. I went cleaning paths. I went cleaning windows, cars, all sorts to get the money together. So, and then I taught myself how to do my makeup for my Boy George albums, you know, and then toned it down, toned it down. And I had quite long hair then. So um, I literally, I waited until my mum and dad had gone out 
And I'd, I'd, I'd got like 60 quid together, which in the 80s was a, lot of money. a hell of a lot of money. So it was an equivalent of about 300 quid now. You know what I mean? But, uh, but, the, but so it was because I knew if I did it this time, there's no way I wanted to get, I wanted to be caught. I was 15, coming up to 15 by this chance, by this time. You're still only 14. Yeah. And I'm guessing this yeah. is the big running away story. Yeah. And, it were, and basically coming up to 15, it was, um, so I, I had my 15th birthday. Put on the act. I planned every move. So I used to, I had a cap, put my hair in a ponytail, had this cap. I kept saying to my mum, can you wash? I really like this jumper. I really like this T-shirt. Can you wash these? And these jeans, can you? I really like them. So, so, so what would happen is every time she was washing them. So, so basically my plan was that if the police got involved, they would say, so when he loved this top and he loved these trousers, so he would have left looking like this with his cap on with this. So I knew you know, at that time, exactly how I was going to do it. So then, literally, I bleached my hair blonde when my mother went out and prayed to God that he didn't come back drunk and stinking a whiskey. I can't stand whiskey or Southern Comfort to this day because my dad always smelled a whiskey or Southern Comfort. So, I, you know, I, I still hate the smell of it to this day. It, mm-hmm. it just bring clogs them, them memories that mm-hmm. start flashing back, you know, mm-hmm. of punches and kicks and... Whatever. So, but I prayed to God he didn't come in. So I waited, got in bed under the sheets. See, but they won't come straight in, straight to bed, right? So just opened the door, checked. I was under the sheets, so they couldn't see my hair. My hair died. So and then waited until I could hear my dad snoring. Mm-hmm. So then left. It was about about waited till about three four in the morning. Went to Barrow and Furnish train station, and I bought a dress. I bought. I'd bought makeup, I'd bought things like that, you know what I mean? A little pair of low heels or whatever at the time. And went to Barrow and Furnace uh, train station, which was open 24 hours then. So, so dressed, I, dressed as a woman? No, no, no. I went as a guy, but I left the house with a cap on the works, mm-hmm. but then went in there, made up in the, in the toilets, bought an adult ticket to Manchester, much cheaper than it was these days. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's a fortune now. You know, but in them days, it was like, what, seven quid mm. to Manchester for an adult ticket. One way, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. So I bought the one-way one way ticket. That was it. But I just looked like a slightly heavily made-up teenage girl at that time because I was young. When you're young, you can get away with murder. Mm. So, and, so, and then eventually, when I'd been gone for a long period of time, they did a crime watch reconstruction. Um I've, so you uh, went missing? Yeah, I went. I was missing for two years. It was in the papers, in the Barrow Evening Mail, the works, everything, that I was missing. And I was missing for two years because I came to Manchester. I lived rough for about for about five months, you know, so on you a bench. Didn't, you didn't know anyone in Manchester? No, didn't you know just, anyone. You just no. turned up thinking, yeah. I can't live that life yeah. anymore. I need, I need, I know for a fact, if I'd have stopped in that town, I probably wouldn't have been here today. I, I know I would have... Committed Harry Carey because I hated it. That I hated the town that much. You I hated the bullying. Yourself. Yeah, I hated the bullying. I hated the being called faggot, queer, mind your back boys. Did also. you ever have a moment then when mm. you did come out to your family or anyone? <laughs> I did. Around? What happened was um, I come to Manchester. I knew I, I knew I could sing. I always knew I could sing. So I entered a talent competition in Napoleon's. I found out where the gay scene was. Entered a talent competition in Napoleon's. I won the talent competition. Which then gave me, they asked me then to work there three nights a week, which was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then, and with Dixie Diamond and Terry Fox at the time. So, so then, so then literally, 
um, I was getting 30 quid a night. And in the end, that was a heck of a lot of money. So then I ended up moving in with Dixie. And of all places, Queen's Road. (laughs) (laughs) How ironic. (laughs) I ended up living on Queen's Road, which was brilliant. So, but then... Dixie's landlord said to me, why don't you claim when I got to 17-year-old? Fine, so I did. And that's when that that's when um, it was registered, basically, with my national insurance number, that I was I was around. So So your family found you? Well well they the police the police actually came to the house, but they couldn't tell my family. I said I don't want my family to know where I am. Right. But many moons ago when I was a child, we lived in Manchester in Redgate and my parents had still had friends that lived there. So they got in touch with Veronica at the time, and Veronica was seeing, was seeing a policeman. Who's Veronica? Uh, Veronica was my, a friend of the family that lived right. in, that lived in uh, Hyde in Redgate. Mm. Her policeman friend checked on the, checked on the scanner and whatever of, um, about me, and then he, he, he told her, so that's how they found out where I was. Uh-huh. Right? So they used to come down, but I'd missed them all the time. So, and they, they put... One time put a note through the door, please call us, blah, blah, blah. So I called them. I called them and that was and that scariest thing making that phone call. It, it, you know, I mean, my mum answered and it, and it says, hi, it's me, blah, blah. And, uh, and of course, they then, they then, uh, she says, oh, you know, oh, wow, wow, yeah. And, uh, and I says, there's something I've got to tell you, you know, um, I'm... I'm gay, and that's it. You know, I am gay, and and I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm not. I live my life here in Manchester now, and I'm not going to hide it. Oh. So hence, so and she, oh, that's fine. But I, I then nipped up back to Barrow, and so her reaction was, it's fine. It's fine, but it, but it wasn't. It wasn't fine. Dad was still homophobic. It was blatantly obvious that he was still homophobic and things like that. And it kind of. It was at that point because they knew where I live now, and I didn't like that. I didn't like them knowing where I was, so it was it was just me, you know. I, so I had to move then because I didn't want them to know where I was. It, it was. Did you ever end up having a conversation with your dad then? Um, I did. It was blatantly obvious that my dad was homophobic, but then it was a case when I become this big, when I was doing my big illusion show in London and things like that and, and doing various and doing TV things and stuff like that, doing the doing the bill, doing London's Burning, doing as time goes by, acting on those and all sorts. It was like, I was, oh, the amazing son then, this is my son then, this is my son. And when I was doing children's shows, you name it, so I'm, we're working for royalty when we're doing all sorts, it was, oh, that's my son, that's my son. So I was the proud son then, it was pride has punched them. Then when I kind of wanted to do my own stuff, um, and and do the drag queen thing again because mm. that really it's 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 head again and what I started doing that because makeup is the most fantastic thing it's the it's the the hideaway you know it is because having lived because I never said that I lived as a woman for two years in Manchester that's how you went yeah, under the that, radar that's because and and literally of course of course the voice would change totally and. You know, as far as anybody was concerned at the time, of course, I was, I was a girl because I looked, you know, I looked so convincing at the time so I could live then as a, as a girl. And so that was easier for you. Yeah, it was easy. So literally, but I did think I wanted to go for gender reassignment. I did mm. think that. And I kind of did speak to doctors at the time about it, but I realised it was because I wanted to escape from that horrible childhood. So I'm glad I didn't mm. because it's not what I would have wanted. You know, so I mean, not 
anybody out there that does go through gender reassignment, it's their journey. I realised it wasn't mine. I'm I'm an entertainer. It's what I do. That's you know. So it was. So having having done that and done the cabaret and things like that, I literally I wanted to get back to it. I'd missed it. Did you ever get the acceptance that you were craving then from your from your parents? No, I thought I did. I thought I did, but then, but then um, six years ago, um, at my house, uh, my I'd, I'd always. I'd always um, forgiven. Over the years, Dad had been homophobic when at various times, and you know, caused fights. I kicked him out my house, got the police on many occasions. When he used to come to a place in London, the works, everything, and I kind of always accepted. I well, accepted his apology, all sorts, for the sake of my mother every time because I thought my mother cared galore. Basically, that was it. It was always for my mum, but then. But every time you get the hassle, and when he was drunk, there's always a hassle. And then I've got I, my ex-partner, um, who is one of my closest friends, was at my house, and uh, my dad was drunk uh, one night. He was down here. This is five years ago. So this is, bear in mind, this is 30 years later, okay. you, know, um, you know. And, he, um, and he, he then went off on one drunk, um, ended up <laughs> starting all the homophobic abuse and things like that. Then um, he ended, I ended up asking him to leave. He then got a knife and slashed my ex-partner Richard's face open um, and slit his throat, missed his main jugular by a millimetre, then oh attacked me, went to attack me. I put my hand in the way. Um, he sliced my hand up and hence... I'm, I'm a magician. One of my things, my passions in life is magic. One of the biggest passions has become, I remember the magic, magic circle was the most wonderful thing for me because I love magic. And, of course, I, I did close-up magic for many, many years and, and illusions and things like that. And, of course, when it, and I was left-handed for 40 years of my life because, of course, he, he sliced my hand open and sliced mm. all the tendons in my hand, literally right down from right from where my thumb is, in the middle of where my thumb, thumb and my forefinger mm. is, right, it's sliced right down. So the tendons were cut. <sighs> so they've operated twice on that, and the tendons have died. Um, so you can't use your left I, hand I, I can't. So he's made yeah. it disabled, basically. Yeah. So, so I've had to teach myself to do everything's opposite way around. The only thing I can't, can't do now is magic, magic which, is, which was my, my release. Yes, I do all forms of entertainment and things like that, but magic was my passion. It was... And, the fact, I mean, he did go to prison for it and then got out and was on tag, which is annoying. Do you still, sp- do you still speak? Um, no, I don't. If you could sit your dad down and he would really listen to you, mm. what would you like to say to your father? I'd like to tell him what an evil, homophobic piece of crap he is. Um, I'd like to tell him to wise up because we are now in 2018. Right, we are in a multicultural Britain with a plethora of different sexualities, colour and creeds. And the fact is, accept everyone for who they are. Stop living in your past. He was brought up in homes and things like that and in an era where, yes, it was frowned upon, things like that. But the fact is now things have changed and a lot of people out there have got to realise things have changed. Right, at the end of the day, it's not going to be anything bad. I can stand next to you and put my arm around. It doesn't mean I want to sleep with you. I can stand next to you and chat with you. It doesn't mean I'm going to infect you. 
That's it. This is it. We are who we are. People are who they are. Accept people. I'd say accept people for who they are, not for what they are. Do you think it's a lot easier yeah. for young people to come out today than it was for you? I, I wouldn't say it's hard for anybody. I wouldn't say it's easy for anybody. I would say it's... It depends on the person. On you see, you still got homophobic families. You still get ignorance, and and it's ignorance because they're uneducated. And Quentin, one of Quentin Crisp's quotes were, "Everybody hates what they don't understand." And it's so true. If they don't understand it, they hate it, and that's what some people are. So some kids are still going to grow up in that. In that, that faggots, queers, arse bandits, donut punchers, backdoor stabbers, dirtbag riders, all the names, you know, right? So they're going to grow up with that. They're going to hear that, and it's going to be hard for them. And some some families are liberal minded, and they've changed, and it's like, yeah, so what? So there's always going to be a problem for some people, and there's going whether whether they're coming out as being trans, whether they're coming out as being lesbian, whether they're coming out as being gay, whether they're coming out as being pansexual, whether they're coming out as being asexual, whether you know in. All the different, all the different labels. No matter which way, which way they're saying, "Oh well, I am," or "I am not," or or this, it's always going to be hard. It's always going to be the hardest decision you do in your life is telling your parents because you don't know what the reaction will be. And if it is that reaction, I think people gear up for that reaction of, "Oh wow," you know. But if if they end up getting, I've had friends that have said they've got the reaction of, "Oh well, I knew," you know that. Well, all that. Ten, all that anger and all that thing that I was going to say if they'd have said, oh, you get out of the house. But they, then when they've said, oh, well, I knew. You know, thanks for telling me. But then you've other other ones that have had the experience that they've been kicked out of the house because they didn't want it, things like that. It's, it's anyone out there, if you want to be who you are, right, there are, in loads of towns, cities, there are LGBT youth groups for young gay people out there and even if you can't find one in your area google lgbt on the internet it's easy to find you know and literally find a telephone number for an lgbt in your area and you will get some support and help that you need there's lots out there in whatever town or city no matter where you are please don't go down the lines of being depressed of wanting to kill yourself of anything like that it's you have the support and help in 2018 out there. Use it, embrace it, and be you and be happy. Huge thank you to Lucy for sharing their story with us. And great to hear how finally running away to Manchester led them to be able to live the life they deserved. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us there at Come Out Stories. I'm Emma Goldswell. And Coming Out Stories is a What Goes On media production. Next time round, you're going to hear from a young lesbian called Sophie, who first went to a gay club aged 17 and bumped into someone she didn't really want to bump into. We both looked at each other and she was like, if I buy you a drink, will we never talk of this again? I was like, deal, absolutely. <laughs>